Well, let's kick it off. Here we are at the second live podcast for Honestly Speaking. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, this one is a little new um, and different. Uh, we have a, it's kind of like a town hall vibe. interviewing uh, mayoral candidate, Diane Morales, who's here with us right now. Um, Diane is, like I said, running for mayor, first gen Puerto Rican, educator, Bed-Stuy native, advocate, nonprofit CEO, the list goes on and on. But Diane, we're very happy to have you. Uh, our live audience is excited as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, sure. First of all, thank you all for having me. This is very exciting. I'm, I'm, um, I'm glad to be here and have this opportunity to be in conversation and community with you all. So, you know, you covered some of the basics. Um, first generation, Afro-Boricua. Um, I'm also the single mom of um, two young adults, college students who are home virtual schooling, despite my best laid plans um, to, as a single mom to not have them home at this point in my life. You know, you, you called it. I've been um, working in the community as an advocate, activist, organizer, and, and CEO of, of anti-poverty organizations. Most recently, in the in the South Bronx. You know, I um, I never thought that I'd be running for mayor. Quite frankly, this is an idea that I really started to entertain or allow myself to consider in 2019. Um, after decades of of both personally experiencing the structural and systemic barriers and dedicating my career to helping others overcome some of those inequities and injustices. Um, and I think, you know, in the wake of the 2016 election, kind of, you know, reflecting and examining my life and, and wondering whether or not there was more that I could do um, and, and what that would look like. Um, and, you know, for the first time, allowing myself to consider the idea that people have been suggesting to me that I run for office. Um, and I think now in the, in the, in the wake of the pandemic and, and everything and the intersection of all these crises, it's crystal clear to me that there is a unique sort of moment in time and there's a political and, and moral imperative for us to, you know, to co coalesce and, you know, make a collective decision that we're not going back, that we can't unsee some of the things we, we've seen and that we can make a choice to build differently than, than what we have been sort of operating in. And, and so um, my commitment and my affirmation to this actually being the right path is, is stronger than ever. Um, and I think, I do believe that we need an inside outside strategy, that we need the folks on the ground to continue doing the work, the movement work. Um, and we need an ally on the inside who's genuinely going to um, continue to fight for, for the cause. So here I am. Absolutely. I'm so excited to have you here with us. And I know everyone on the call is really excited as well. I apologize, my dog's going crazy in the background. Um, Diana, I have a question for you. What Was there an aha moment for you to where you were like, I can't um, prolong this any longer. Like I need to, I need to do this. And what, what did that look like? Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't actually a moment. It was a process um, because as someone who has, First, you know, my entire career and life really believed that, you know, change comes from people recognizing and owning their power um, and exercising it. Um, and so therefore, you know, that's why my orientation was always in community. And, you know, I am of the, you know, I am of the ilk that has been um, most negatively impacted by, by government and leadership, right? We haven't been centered, we haven't been elevated, we haven't pri been prioritized. And so it's, it's, it's not like it was a natural thing for me to think about holding office as, as a sort of lever for change. I, you know, like I said, in 2016, started really kind of searching for what is it that I need to be doing differently? And how do I leverage and bring to bear my personal experiences and my professional experiences for the good of our people? And, um, you know, quite frankly, the first time I agreed to have a conversation to explore it, it was kind of like, 
it was almost like um, sarcastic. I kind of said to my friends, you know, if I agree to actually have this conversation, do, do y'all agree to shut up about it once it's over? Because I just assumed it was going to be a foregone conclusion that, you know, we were going to have the conversation and be like, oh, no, this doesn't make any sense. Um, so it was sort of like, do you agree to let it go and stop bringing it up? But, you know, there was there was actually, I guess, you know, in that in that session, this was sort of like a informal kitchen cabinet. Some people, you know, people who have experience in the electoral politics world and in movements and stuff like that. There was a it was about a, a three hour block, about halfway through. It looked like it was going. No. Right. Like because everybody was talking about all of the challenges. And I remember I had a little notepad and I remember stopping in that moment and kind of being like, "Ooh, it's going to be no. I was like, Diane, are you OK with that? Like just check your ego, right? Are you okay? And I was like, mm -hmm, I'm okay with that. Um, and then we kept talking and, and the, all of a sudden things shifted in the room and there was this momentum because um, someone asked me the question, uh, well, why would I vote for you? She was just sort of being provocative. Um, and in that moment, I would just sort of went on about how we've never been represented and we've never had a voice at the table. And, you know, we've never had leadership that actually was loyal to us first. And so, you know, it, at the end of my response, there was like a silence. And then it was kind of like, yep, you need to do this. And then it was kind of like, oh, wow, you know? So that was when I started to really be open to it. And then it just has kind of, it has just kind of grown. And I think for me right now, it this started off like the historic candidacy, first Afro-Latina to run for mayor. That's not what's historic about this campaign, actually. I think what's historic about this campaign um, will be revealed um, in hindsight. And, you know, when people really examine who has, you know, what the coalition looks like that has come together behind this campaign um, and how um, I believe that coalition reflects something that we really quite, haven't quite seen, you know, 30% people are being unemployed, you know, the most frequent denomination of donations being $10. Um, the average donation being, you know, less than $50. That to me is historic. When you're talking about a New York City mayoral campaign, I think that's what's going to end up being the thing about this, my race and, my, you know, my campaign in particular, that people will really um, remember and speak about for, for a long, long time. There's a lot of people running for mayor. It almost, it kind of feels like 2016, you know, the Democratic primary, you're getting a lot of people throwing their hat in the ring, you know, and you're getting a, a sort of a, a true diversity or a true spectrum of a type of candidate. You've been running your campaign since before COVID happened, I believe, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so you know, it's a long lead up. The election itself yeah. isn't until November of this year. Now, can you talk to me a bit about the things you focused on before COVID and then COVID and then you get George Floyd and and, and things just explode. And I think yeah. maybe gives you an opportunity to sharpen uh, your focus on specific tenets of your platform. It, yeah. Was there much of a transition there? And, and if so, you know, what's changed given this new environment? Yeah. So, okay. So I, um, I announced or not announced, I, you know, I filed um, quietly in the summer of 2019, I was still uh, the CEO of an anti-poverty organization in the South Bronx, and I had been there for almost a decade. So, you know, I knew that it wasn't going to be a quick transition. I knew I had to leave my job, right, first of all, because just too much of a, you, first of all, I, as, as someone who's not part of the political establishment or the networks or machine, I, you know, I, I knew I had a lot of ground to cover. But I also knew that I had to give my job the, its due. And so I didn't actually step down until January. Um, so there was, you know, some quiet stuff that I was doing from the campaign perspective before, um, sort of on a part-time basis. But what was clear even then was my, my platform and my campaign centering and elevating um, women of color, black and brown communities, the working class, immigrants that was that was clear that was established in my um in my platform and then as you said covid hit and then george floyd was murdered and what what is i don't know if the right word is interesting um because you know trauma like the trauma that our communities have experienced isn't necessarily interesting but what you know what what is ironic maybe about what all of those things did is that they just elevated the issues that i was trying to talk about and that I, I felt kind of like, we're gonna make my campaign, 
you know, kind of like the, the oddball out was because I was being bold about the things I wanted to talk about. You know, let's talk about race. Let's talk about equity. Let's talk about um, all of these things that are disproportionately impacting our communities and the injustice of them. And then all of a sudden it was like this huge floodlight on those very issues by, by virtue of COVID, how, you know, who was on the front lines in COVID, who was dying as a result of COVID. And even now, you know, who's getting the vaccine, you know? Um, and, and then there was the George Floyd thing, right? Um, which brings, you know, exacerbates the whole, whole sort of criminal legal system, policing, school to prison pipelines, like all of that, which were things that I, I, you know, I already had as part of my platform, right? And so it was kind of like, you know, I've been on the side in the shadows with, with my topics and my agendas that, you know, most campaigns don't center those things in that way, right? And then it was like the floodlight got turned on and shifted to my campaign as a result of everything that was happening. So I, we didn't really change anything. Um, we just got louder, right? And more people started listening, I think is essentially what, what happened. Um, we didn't change, we didn't change what we were, what our message was. Um, we did change our, you know, I mean, we had just li literally started, I left my job in January of 2020, right? COVID hit us in March. Um, so I was just starting to figure out what does it mean to run a campaign? What does that mean, you know? What does that look like in my, what does my life look like now? And then COVID hit. And so we actually stopped campaigning from like March to June because I, I went with what my, my core is and my gut is, right? And started serving the community during that period of time. So. Well, Diane, it, it does seem like you did take one step forward, which is you put a number to defund police, right? That is yes. something a lot of people have talked about. You know, everyone's always like, well, what does that mean? Where do you stand? You came out and said three billion. So you know, how do we get there, and what, what does that what does that look like in uh, in actuality? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, it looks like putting a stake in the ground. Um, it looks like being unapologetic and unabashed about what true safety means for our communities. You know, public safety and policing are not the same thing. And I think for too long um, we have allowed um, for those things to be equated when we know that the communities that are most heavily policed are in fact the, mo the ones that are most harmed um, and the ones that feel le the least safe. While you know, on, on the other side of that, the, the communities that are safe and feel safe um, are communities that are, are, are wealthy. And I don't mean you know, in terms of dollars necessarily, although we know that that's the precursor, uh, but wealthy in terms of access to resources and alternatives and opportunities and, and housing and healthcare and jobs and all of the things that we want for our communities. And so um, when, you know, when I talk about defunding the police and people have all their reactions about it, you know, we've been defunding housing, we've been defunding education, we've been defunding healthcare for our communities for decades. And no one you know, who is you know, really sort of clutching their pearls about the defund the police conversation uh, raised an eyebrow, right? Um, and so you know, it, we're really talking about reinvesting um, dollars in the ways that are most directly connected to keeping our communities safe. We're talking about um, investing in housing, investing in mental health services, investing in job training programs, investing in violence interruption programs, investing in substance abuse, you know, really, really investing in the, in the, the needs of human beings so that people are able to actually move towards a path that enables them to live in dignity. Um, and we all know that, you know, the last thing we should be sending, you know, last person we should be sending to, uh, you know, a homeless woman in, in mental health crisis is a, is a person with a gun. Um, and so, you know, I've also called for the creation of a community first responders department um, that would, you know, instead of sending armed officers to these very social, um, justice situations um, would send people who are trained at intervention and de-escalation, um, mental health specialists, counselors, medics, um, who would also serve as part of our larger ecosystem of human service organizations, of treatment programs, of organizations, you know, so that those people then actually get connected to something that is going to change, you know, help them sort of 
access what they need rather than worst case scenario being shot dead, best case scenario being locked up overnight, and then the next day being released right back into the same circumstances, right? We need to interrupt that cycle. Um, and we don't, we, we know that we can't do that with police officers who are not trained or interested, quite frankly, in responding to those situations, right? So the other way to think about it is, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm simply offering to unburden them from the tasks that they're being charged with that they are not trained for or equipped for. I actually have a, a question, and I know Ed wants to go into a, a different topic, but you know, you do have this background in working with, you know, folks who are, you know, housing insecure. And, you know, there was kind of like the big article that was out, I think, in the Daily and New York Times on Victor Rivera and just all the terrible things that he did. And I was I was pretty shocked to actually read that there actually is quite a large budget in the city when it comes to housing. It's just the majority of these groups that are running it are actually like all failing their grades, but they continue to get funding. So what can we do? I, I think, I always kind of think in my mind, you know, people, you know, moderates, Republicans, whoever you want to say, they've been on this multi-decade campaign of making sure people think that government doesn't work. <laughs> and, you know, this is kind of one of these things that unfortunately plays into it, even though I, I don't agree with that. Um, so like, what do we do to correct that? So when we talk about this reinvestment, which I actually like that word, you know, it's like that defund, but it's actually a reinvestment to actually show to people clearly that like, this is where, how the like proper government can work. Like, what are we missing right now in the way that the COG is working? Well, uh, y'all gonna make me put all my stuff out there. Um, the reality of it is that the things are working exactly the way they were set up to work. Uh, you know, I, 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 I and, and part of my whole thing, right? The shelter system, that the piece that you're talking about, why are we, why have we, contributed to and, and created this shelter system, right? This shelter industrial complex, as opposed to just trying to focus on prioritizing getting people permanent homes. Why are we spending so much money on this system that actually does not work? As someone who operated shelters for almost a decade, I can tell you my fight was constantly because they did not allow me, they would not allow me. So I had to find workarounds they would not allow me to use any dollars towards education or job training for these folks. The emphasis was just get them out, get them out. Even if it meant that they weren't gonna be able to stay out, right? And so, you know, you, we're talking about a couple billion dollars that gets spent on the shelter system. What would it look like for us to instead reinvest those dollars? in creating and providing permanent housing for people, right? So that that issue, like we can't have public safety, we can't have public health, and we can't recover our economy if people don't have a place to live, right? So, uh, you know, it, it is, it's, it's an interesting kind of like self-perpetuating cycle, right? We do, we create these programs that are like Band-Aids um, and meant to placate people and lull them into a false sense of complacency, then those programs don't work. Then we say government doesn't work, right? Like that's kind of like self-perpetuating as opposed to actually being willing to focus on and invest in the things that provide the pathways to long-term solutions and long-term stability. And that's, you know, essentially what, you know, everything that I talk about on my platform is about, we've been doing it this way, we have to do it, we have to flip that model on its head. Um, and so we need to, rather than being reactive and, and responding to crisis as even as poorly as we're responding to crisis right now, we actually should be proactive and investing in the front end. So this may, you know, looking at your website, so this is a, a great segue, your platform, you have a list of so many good things, but at the very top of the list is housing. You know, you've touched on this, obviously, with uh, sort of the houseless scene and, and, and getting more permanent housing for folks. But mm -hmm. um, I, I guess it's, it's kind of, you know, my opinion, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, that segregation undergirds everything, maybe even all of our problems, maybe even police violence, because when you segregate certain populations, the people are sort of sitting ducks um, and primed already for police violence. So it's even kind of connected to their um, you know, in my opinion. So, mm -hmm. it, and the segregation, it's sort of a decades long 
or even centuries long project to segregate people like this in the first place. Mm -hmm. If you were mayor, how would you even begin to tackle desegregation and instantiate, you know, more permanent housing? Yeah. Um, so those are a lot of a lot of um, intertwining issues. Um, right. And one of the one of my sort of um, standard campaign quotes is the Audrey Lord, Lord quote. There, you know, there's no single issue struggles because there's no single issue people. Um, and so, you know, the the historic way in which we have tried to silo issues and deal with one issue, thinking that you know we can we can solve that even if we're not addressing all the other things is highly problematic, right? Um, our 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 solutions need to be um, complex and comprehensive. Um, and so what I, the one sort of thing I would edit, change, I would personally would change about your, your premise is I, I'm not sure that the, the problem is segregation. I think the problem is racism. Um, racism has led to segregation, right? Um, and, and all of the challenges that come about as a result of that. And quite frankly, um, this might be controversial, um, but, I'm not sure that black and brown folks necessarily want to be integrated. I think we just want equal quality and equal resources. Um, you know, I, I have plenty of, there's plenty of folks, um, you know, I live in Bed-Stuy, there's plenty of folks who don't necessarily feel like the composition of their children's classrooms um, has to be different. Um, it's just that we we also know that the resources follow certain communities, right? And so that's where the problem is really the you know the root of the problem is really um, in that sort of fundamental premise that we have to be integrated in order to have equal resources. Um, and so. I, that's my sort of like theoretical framework for all of this, right? And then, you know, from the housing perspective, there is that, you know, there is the redlining that has happened and, and all of that in terms of segregating communities, but there's also the affordability issue, um, which is a citywide issue. Um, and I think that that is directly tied to how it is that the housing market, the framework that the housing market has been driven by, which is one that relies on developers to provide and, and create the housing, right? Large developers to provide and create the, the housing that's supposedly affordable for our communities. And the idea that we have to trade off and give them tax breaks and tax subsidies in order for them to create nice things for us. Like low income black and brown folks can't have nice things. We can't have a development that has amenities um, unless we're willing to throw the developers significant um, tax subsidies. And then what that results in is units that are in fact not affordable because they're based on, you know, citywide AMI. We could actually, so, so that system was a choice, right? People chose at some point to embrace that model of, of creating housing. We could in fact make a choice that we're going to invest those dollars, those same dollars that we provide to, to um, developers in terms of contracts and kickbacks and, and, I said kick, kickbacks, um, tax subsidies and um, um, tax incentives, um, we could in, it choose in fact to invest those in our local communities, in our local small mom and pop contractors and developers. Somebody asked that question in the chat. So I'm, asked, I'm, I'm speaking to that question as well. Um, we could choose that that's who we're going to, we're gonna invest in our local small and mid-sized businesses including those contractors who employ 50, small and mid-sized businesses by the way, employ 50, 4% of the New York City workforce. So that whole idea that, oh my God, the big corporations and companies are leaving New York City, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna recover? Well, we could choose in fact to first focus on the 54% that um, are part of our local economy rather than the extracted, the people that come in, exploit our labor and extract our wealth. Same thing applies on the housing front. We could do that and instead invest in increasing and expanding social housing Vienna has an amazing model that's really truly mixed income, increasing and expanding cooperative housing and increasing and expanding community land trusts, which in fact allow communities the ability to design their own neighborhoods and design what they want, right? So it is a, it is a way to provide deeply affordable housing for, for folks um, all over the city 
And then there's also the idea of, and I'm gonna stop talking after this sentence because I, I can go on and on about this. There's also the idea of us reclaiming and repurposing existing vacant spaces because the, the reality of it is, is if, that if we had the courage right now, we could house every single homeless person in this city. We have enough vacant spaces, we can repurpose commercial office spaces, hotel rooms, we could be flexible with zoning and we can just say, this is the commitment that we're making to our neighbors and this is what we're gonna do. And that's why I talk about it being a choice. In the beginning of your answer, and you know, you talked about segregation and separate communities and folks in those communities, not necessarily feeling like we need integration, like we just want equal resources. It's 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 really interesting because it kind of brings you to sort of the Brown v. Board logic, right? You know, mm -hmm. where separate is inherently unequal, unequal in America. You know what I mean? And and it's sort of like, all right, well, let's, you know, the sort of the argument of of, well, let's just get these communities equal resources. It's, it's trying to push the separate and equal argument, um, you know, sort of against that. Do, do yeah. you think that separate can actually ever be equal the way yeah. that communities think that they want it? Yeah, so let me just be clear, right? I, I was saying that to be deliberately provocative. Um, I do think that there are, there are benefits to integration um, from a social emotional perspective, right? If we wanna undo racism in our society, um, we can't have the first time a white kid meets a black person be when they're 22, right? Like there are, there are different benefits. Um, and I think that that's the, you know, when I think about integration, um, I, I'm thinking again in that sort of comprehensive and holistic and complex way um, that it benefits us. Um, but from the, you know, I, I try not to lead with desegregation um, and more sort of focus on on resources and integration, because I think it's different. Um, and I think it's worth, we don't talk about that explicitly enough. Um, I think it's worth naming it as, as it is, right? Because it's not like we want integration because we're gonna be better if we get, you know, if we have white people in our classrooms. That's, you know, that's kind of not the model that I think we should be advancing. Um, we want integration because we understand um, the value, social, emotionally, psychologically, of, of being in diverse spaces for the better of all of society, not just for the improvement of black and brown lives, right? Um, and also what we really want is, um, what we really need is, is the same resources that everybody else would get access to. Thanks for that clarification and for pushing Eddie. Eddie's a pusher, likes to push. I love it. Bring it. So I, I have a question for you. I'm going to switch from your right brain to your left brain right now. Okay. All right. So I'm an artist and sometimes um, it's hard for me to imagine things outside of what I've been programmed to, to understand, even though I have a vivid imagination and visualization and manifestation. But I feel like for my generation and for a lot of people in America, we've been programmed to understand, well, this, this is what prison is, right? This is, what do you mean abolish prisons? What does that look like? What, what do we do with people? Like uh, defund police. I think this is why we have these, these things that trigger people yeah. because it's hard for them to imagine something different. Yeah. Um, I'm curious if you're working with any local art organizations or incorporating art or more abstract part uh, abstract things into the formatting of your campaign to kind of help people actually visualize these these concepts that are mm -hmm. might be hard for us to wrap our heads around yeah yeah thank you for that question i appreciate being able to tap into the other side of my brain um so i really appreciate it. i'm gonna um sort of answer this in, in two parts, I think. On the personal front, um, on the artist thing, I have such a deep appreciation for that perspective and that worldview um, and that, that side of the brain, um, partially because my daughter, both of my children have um, learning differences and my daughter struggled quite a bit until she discovered the arts. And I watched her transformation from sixth grade through 12th grade um, as she kind of really blossomed into um, a learner in a different kind of way. And I had, you know, I feel like before that I had been watching her kind of rapidly decline when she, you know, was questioning her value and questioning uh, just a lot of things about herself. And then, and then she found the arts. So I value the arts um, 
you know, there's a lot of talk in, in this current time, there's a lot of talk about the arts as an economic engine for New York City. And I, I, I appreciate that. But for me, it's so much more than that, right? Um, it is, a, it is a, a critical part of our healing. Um, it is a critical part of how we learn. I, I think, you know, particularly for some people over others, it's a critical part of our identity and sort of culture and, and all of that. So I, on a personal front, really appreciate that. The campaign, from the campaign's perspective, um, this has come up quite a bit in the last week and a half or so. We've been really artist heavy. Um, we've had uh, a lot of events that have been centered around artists and the arts. And I'm not sure, it wasn't intentional. That's just kind of the way it's kind of organically come up and who our community, so a lot of our community is which I think is amazing. And I think that also speaks to some of my opening comments about, you know, we will see, I think the history, the true history of this campaign being in who the co who composed the, the coalition. Um, and also to your, to your specific point is we've been having conversations and I'd love to have you as part of that if you're down um, about how we begin to visually depict some of the, um, the core tenets of the campaign, right? That um, there's, a, because I talk about things being complex and comprehensive, you can't always linear, linearly describe it or like capture it in a narrative. Um, there's this idea that um, we're moving towards visuals um, that I think allow for the overlap and the complexities and the nuances and that kind of thing. Um, and that's part of like, we just did a rebranding. Um, the website is brand new, which is part of why also there's some depth that's missing in some areas. Um, but now we're starting to move um, into that idea of how we capture um, a lot of these concepts in an artistic way. So I really appreciate that question because it's, it's, it's very timely. Diane, you, you and Scott Stringer came out, I don't know if it was two weeks ago or when it was, but you did the joint uh, press conference um, about ranked choice. Yeah. I think we all in theory, get what ranked choice is, but do you mind just like leaning into that a little bit and why it was sure. so important for you two to announce that? Sure. I mean, I think the, so let me just get into the, the, some of the logistics of it, right? So ranked choice voting allows for instant runoffs. And what that means is in the first, you know, on June 22nd, when everybody goes out to vote, there'll be however many candidates on the ballot for mayor. I'm just going to talk about mayor. And they'll count the, you'll get to rank your choices one through five, They'll count the number one votes, right? If I have in that first round cut, if I've got 51% of the vote, it's over. I won the primary, right? But if no one has more than 50% of that first round, then they will begin sort of this process. And I'm gonna to try to explain it without getting too mired into it or too complicated. Um, they'll look at the number ones, you know, the person with the least number one ranking gets automatically eliminated, right? But if you, if you, you know, your person, your number one person gets eliminated, whoever you voted for number two gets your vote, right? And that process kind of continues happening until they find someone that has more than 50%. And then that person is the person who wins the primary, right? So that's the, techn that's the technical part of it. Um, what, what I think, um, just to be clear too, because um, I think people have misunderstood this, the, the press conference that Scott and I did together was not Scott and my press conference. This was um, Senator, State Senator Gustavo Rivera's press conference because he was the one who was announcing his ranked choice one and two. Right, so Scott and I didn't get together in the back room somewhere and talk, start talking about, oh, we're gonna make an alliance and we're gonna work together and we're gonna, that, not, that didn't happen. We're not cross-endorsing, we're not aligning, we're, we're not doing any of that, just to be clear. Gustavo Rivera decided for his own reasons, he wanted to do, that's how, how he wanted to do it. We each, each campaign had to decide whether or not they wanted to accept that, right? Um, I decided to accept it. And I decided to accept it because I think it's important for people to understand that they have a choice, right? For the first time ever, it's not an either or option. For the first time ever, you actually have the ability to rank as your top person, the person who you think reflects your values the most. You don't have to think about like, Oh, well, I really like that person, but that person's never going to win. So I can't vote for that person. I have to put my weight behind 
so-and-so. You actually can say, I don't know if this person's going to win, but this person really speaks to me. So I'm going to put this person number one. And, and what that does is it creates space for people like me who are not part of the political establishment, who are not part of the machine to actually have a chance. And it creates space for the voices of those who have been underrepresented for so long to be heard and to be reflected. And that's why I made the decision um, to accept it and stand up that day because I wanted to communicate that message loud and clear to our communities. Because for too long, we have felt like we had to choose between the lesser of two evils because no one really represented us. And so this is a, this is a I think it's a potential game changer for us. Unfortunately, the city is not doing what I think they need to do in terms of educating our voters so that the voters understand what ranked choice voting is and take full advantage of it. And it's the burden is falling on a lot of the campaigns. Um, and we're hoping to do the best that we can to sort of overcome that deficit. But I think the, the idea and the model of ranked choice voting is a powerful one that could potentially be a, a leveler for a lot of us. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's like the first time I feel like I've even heard it clearly just sat in. I feel like I'm a Politico junkie reading all the time, all these different things. To that point, I mean, with this many candidates, we're probably not going to get 51%. And a few people have been DMing me their questions. And you know, something someone said was like, okay, so if we're not going to get 51%, how is someone like yourself, like, how do you kind of uniquely qualify yourself against the rest, especially knowing that the way the world's going, the language people are going to use is just getting more and more progressive. Let's say you're at the far left of the progressive scope. Whether whatever people are actually going to do and say is going to be kind of different. So I'm just curious to hear from you, you know, what you think that unique qualifier is for you that's going to separate. Yeah. Um, so I'll just say this in terms of the 51%. No, it won't happen in the first round. But there's a lot of cases historically where it hasn't happen, happened in the first round, which is why we've had to have runoffs, right? Um, this is just a, a much more financially and time efficient way of doing that. Um, it avoids that second, you know, second voting, uh, the runoff thing. So that the 51% on, on, at first count is not unusual, but we will get there because we have the ranked choice voting. You know, in terms of what separates me from the rest, there's a lot. Um, how much time do you have? Um, but I will tell you kind of what I've been sharing is I, I, you know, it goes back to what made me decide to run. I have the number of times that people who I talk to through the course of the campaigning and who at the end of the conversation go, oh my God, I have so much in common with you. Like we've so much of our lived experiences, right? First generation, black Boricua, single mother, children with learning differences, son who's been racially profiled, former educator in the New York, Pro I mean, those things are like, that's, you know, you can, you can ride a subway and, and, and talk to 10 people who have a lot of those traits in common, right? And so people, there, there's something about that that I think is, is speaking to people, like it's somebody who's like me, right? And at the same time, what else, the other thing that I bring to the table is that I've actually spent my entire career doing work that directly, that was focused on directly improving people's lives on a day-to-day -day basis, right? At the end of every day, I could look at my, I could review my day and go, what, what things did I do and how many people were affected by the things that I did today, right? What programs did I put in place? How many people did we put in, in permanent housing? How many people did we get? Um, jobs that put them on a career trajectory, that jobs that help them move out of a shelter and into permanent housing. Um, how many people do we help get into college, get college degrees, right? Things that you could measure and track um, that were changing people's lives, transforming people's lives, leading large scale organizations with hundreds of staff, managing budgets where there was a deficit, right? Let me tell you something, a human service CEO Contracts for the human service industry get reimbursed at 80 cents on the dollar. So if you successfully run an organization for 10 years and you grow it, it means not only have you figured out how to close that deficit year after year after year, but you've actually figured out how to run programs effectively enough that the programs are expanding and growing, right? There is not a single person in this race who can match that experience to mine, 
not a single, and I said this at the very beginning, I will put my experience up against anybody else in this race, specifically on that metric. Show me, show me, I've done it. And I think the combination of my personal experience and my professional experience as an executive, as someone who has navigated code switching, both sides of the tracks, all of that, multiple stakeholders and getting everybody to feel like they're on the same team working towards the same goal and that each of their contributions matters. That's me. That's right. You better let these people know. <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, <laughs> Diane, okay. So you know, we got to talk about vaccines. I think mm. this whole pandemic has been at just a, a, an illuminating civics lesson for all of us. And yeah. I think the biggest tug of war is like, where does the burden fall? Is it federal, state, local? Who's in charge here? Who's like, you know, in, in, in the rollout, rollout currently, it's, you know, it's still the beginning. Um, there's been hiccups and, and, and so forth. I mean, where does the mayor fit into this? Like, what, what do you think needs to happen um, from the mayor's office in terms of the COVID rollout, the vaccine yeah. rollout? Um, so, you know, I, we've been talking about this a lot and I spent the last, right before I jumped on this call, as a matter of fact, um, I've been doing mutual aid over the last year. This past weekend got access to the possible scheduling of 300 appointments for seniors and took, took on the responsibility of ensuring that those appointments were being distributed in an equitable way to the seniors in, in Brooklyn communities that have been most disproportionately impacted. And we did it, thankfully, um, which I think means we're gonna get more slots next week. But you know, I, I, part of that, we haven't, there's so much that we haven't done. Um, and I get that it, it, there's, there's different levers. You talked about city, state, federal, there's different levers, right? But even within the realm that we can control, we have just not done the, you know, we haven't handled it well, right? We, we have to recognize that the trust in our leadership and our governance has been completely eroded over the last 12 months in particular, right? And so what does that mean if you know that's the case? People are not gonna be jumping for the vaccine. They're not gonna trust it. Um, so we need to go into our communities. We need to get trusted, credible mes messengers that look like our communities, that speak the language, that are culturally relevant. We need to engage those people to help do the education and the outreach. Um, so that we are speaking to our community members in their language in a way that they understand and helping them understand the importance of this. We need to make it easy for them and accessible for them. We need to go to their trusted institutions, the faith-based institutions, the, the neighborhood community organizations, the neighborhood pharmacies, and really provide access there, um, mobile units. We need to combine you know, appointment sites with walk-in sites because we need to remove the technological barrier. You know, th those things are within our control. Those things um, exist. We are not building on the strengths and assets of our communities that already exist. And so there is a, there, there's a lack of clarity, a lack of trust um, and a lack of access that is really just compounding the, the inequities that already existed um, and causing further harm in our communities. And so, you know, I'm doing everything that I can on, on my part to, um, you know, to counter that 300 appointments at a time. Speaking of lack of trust, um, I'm curious if you saw that, uh, I think it was a rap video that Kumo uh, retweeted and was really controversial because it was kind of pandering. It was like this rap video, like, you know, get vaccinated, you know, just trust, just trust us it was it was wild have you seen it i haven't i haven't seen it oh it's probably for the best but it was like an after school <laughs> it was like an after school cartoon for like kids like eat your vegetables but it was targeted towards grown black people which was kind of, which we found kind of offensive but it was pretty crazy. Con sounds condescending at the, at best exactly um yeah it was but you know I, like like i said I, I think we have assets you know, we've always had assets that have gone unrecognized. And so, you know, this is just another example of that. We're not given the ability, you know, the people that are closest to the problem are closest to the solution. We could come, you know, it, it's kind of like, give me the, give me the appointments. We'll figure it out. Right. We could figure it out if we just had access to what we need. 
the vaccine rollout has so many complex issues and obviously I, I think I think we probably all agree that the feds had no plan and then dropped it all on everyone else from there like there had to be some sort of central authority that doesn't mean that local authorities can't do more mm-hmm. I think what's so confusing too around this is there is this mistrust there needs to be better stewards of explaining the process but then we're also in this unique issue where the two main vaccines we're using have very short shelf life because of the freezers and they're yeah. throwing away vaccines every day. So what you then have is you have people with more means, which usually means more white people that are running around the city and they're doing this all over the country, tracking down these sites to try and see where they can get extra yeah. vaccines. And it's like, there's a part of me that it's like, there's a bulldogish part of that where it's like, they would do this no matter what, which I don't appreciate and don't think is right but then there's the other side of it of like we do need to get people vaccinated and like throwing away vaccines also isn't a good thing so it's like we of course have the bigger structural racism part but then there's also just like the practicality of like that and I don't know I just feel like we're failing on all the pieces here yeah I mean yeah um yes I'm gonna stop at the first point you made we have the bigger structural racism issues period Right. Because like if we wanted to create, you know, to put in the systems, the processes that we need so that we're not throwing away vaccines at the end of the day, we could do that, too. Right. We had and this is an awful, awful thing to invoke. But we know we had big freezer trucks outside hospitals for weeks when, you know, at the height of the pandemic last year with with bodies piled in them. Right. So we also know we get trucks for that, too. If we wanted to store the vaccine and make it make it accessible, we could bring those trucks right into the communities and just open it up, right? Like like an ice cream truck, right? That when I talk about mobile mobile units and and sort of mobile distribution, we could we could do that, right? We're making choices about um, where we invest the dollars and the resources. There, that those are moral choices. Those are reflections of our values. Those are reflections of our thoughts about um, how we see some people as being more disposable than others. And, and to me, like that, the conversation has to stop at that point, right? Like there are these, these racist structures in place, period. And we need to confront those things and, and undo them and dismantle them and, and, and have the political moral commitment and courage to do that and put the financial resources behind it to address it. I think, Sorry. Um, I, I didn't mean, I, no, God, no, I no, 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 you're, you're good. You're good. We, we get heated on this, this pot all the time. It's called honestly speaking. This is, okay. this is what okay. we do. You're, you're in good company. We, we had some kind of some lighter questions that people just wanted to know. <laughs> okay. We're figuring out how to make the turn the corner on that. That was good. Like table pounding stuff. That was good. So we I'm sorry. Go. I was. I realized I was pounding my. Table. No, that was that was perfect. That was perfect. I'll just I'll just start with one. So you're a bedside native. Someone was asking us just like, what's your favorite restaurant in bedside? Like, what's your go-to? My favorite restaurant in bedside is probably Eugene's right now. I'm you, not, got, you got you, know, a, you have an item like is there a, is there a certain thing I haven't, I haven't been to Eugene's I know where Eugene's is but um they have a good steak I'm a I'm a red meat eater um, <laughs> um, what, are you, what are you reading right now um I'm reading um Frederick Joseph's uh the the black friend is it the you know do you know Frederick Joseph so he's a New York Times bestseller. Hold on one quick second. The Black Friend, it's called. There we go. Oh. Look at that cover. It's yeah. beautiful cover. Um, so I, I bought this for everybody in my house. Um, Frederick is a supporter of the campaign, too. Okay. Um, so I'm happy awesome. to. What's a quick, just a, a super uh, quick summary of what's that about exactly? Um, so it's actually the title is the black friend on being a better white person it's about um, racial relationships got it um so he talks about he's you know he starts from his perspective as a black man um and his childhood and is basically talking it's a conversation about how to be an ally right like how to be a better white person period got it there's going to be a lot of people, you know, re-listening to this and I I just want to give you the opportunity before we close out 
you know, rather than throwing questions at you, is there anything in particular that you want um, our audience to know about you, about your passion, about your, your deepest, darkest thoughts, whatever you want? Yeah, uh, my deepest, darkest thoughts. Uh, you know, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna stick it. I'm gonna stick with this moment in time, right? Um, you know, I, I've been talking a lot about that. Coming out of this moment in time, our response can't be that we want to go back to normal. Um, I, I think that we have to recognize that what we have seen over the last year has been really driven by issues that are deeply rooted in, in our structures and our systems of oppression and white supremacy. And that we've got a, a, we've got a decision to make right now about whether or not we're gonna move towards a, a future where we can all actually win and we can all live in dignity and where we all will have, you know, where we have the moral and political courage right now to, to prioritize those that have been historically left behind, to, to stabilize people's lives and to radicalize the systems that, that need to be dismantled. Because um, I, I don't think our system is broken. I think it's working the way it was designed to work. And we can't, you know, we can't reform that. We really have to transform it. You know, I, I believe in the idea of being a loving disruptor. I, you know, I'm a, I'm, my team calls themselves loving disruptors. Um, we're, we're troublemakers, but we're troublemakers because I think we believe in what is possible and we will believe in, in, in living up to our true potential as, as people and as a society. Um, and that, you know, good is not good enough um, or good for some is not good enough. Um, and that we can become, you know, we can hold each other accountable and live up to the potential of, of being a city that we've never been. So I'm not talking about, I'm not promising anybody that um, I'm gonna take New York City back to normal. I'm promising that I'm gonna work to build a new New York City that's never exist existed before. Um, and really living up to our aspirations to become the greatest city in the world. I love how we're about. you focus on the core emotion of love, love in politics, like something that's very, I'm very passionate about. And I'm curious, do you, do you know uh, of Middle Church? And my, my mentor is Reverend Jack, Jack Lee Lewis, and she speaks a lot about revolutionary love. And you were, you were giving me Reverend Jackie vibes just a second ago. <laughs> I mean, I do know about Middle Church. I haven't been. I haven't met Reverend Jackie. Um, I'd well, like to have connected for sure. For yeah. sure. Uh, okay. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do it. I, I've heard nothing but, um, you know, really good affirming things about Middle Church in particular. So that would be great. All right. Well, we're, we're closing it out on love. That's a good way to end it. It is. Um, Diane, thank you so much uh, for joining us and talking with us this afternoon. Where should folks find you? Uh, which which websites? Uh, where on Twitter and so forth? Sure, sure. So the website is www.diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, there's two N's in my name, .nyc, diane.nyc. Um, and my social media handle is the same across all platforms. It's Diane, D-I-A-N-N-E, the number four, NYC. So it's Diane for NYC. And that's, um, you can find me anywhere. Perfect. I hear, I hear the virtual applause. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll close it there. Well, thank you so much. And uh, this is, this has been an Thanks, honor. Diane. Thank, thank you. you all for having me. The hour went by quickly. It was um, a really great conversation. I appreciate y'all keeping it real. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Good luck on the campaign. Thank you. Stay healthy right. and stay well. Thank you. Take care. Bye everybody. <laughs>